All right. I want us to jump in today. We are finishing our sermon series uh, that we have called Foundational. Okay, so if it's your first time with us, this is week nine in this. And the premise was there are a lot of things that are key to what we believe as Christians. But we don't always do a great job of understanding those. We do more work sometimes trying to understand a lot of these peripheral things. Or we care more about and we are more passionate about things that are not necessarily our core beliefs, but things kind of on the outside. And So we've been walking through a lot of different topics. But then the last, today in the last two weeks, we've kind of been approaching some that I would not necessarily say are core beliefs. Because what we said core beliefs are, are not just core beliefs of this church, but core beliefs of Christianity. A lot of people said, like, well, is this group, are they going to heaven? Is this group going to heaven? You know, like, well, what about this group over here? And, like, you have all these denominations, and people wonder that. So we said, okay, what is it actually to be a Christian? Because it's so much bigger than our church. And we have some, some beliefs that are different from other churches, like every church out there. But those are not necessarily what define us as Christians. And so we've walked through this. But today, like I said, this is part two from last week where we said, um, essentially, we want to talk about, okay, how, how does this end for us? So the first place we went was, what happens when we die? And funny enough, you may think that you have a really easy answer to that. When we started diving into scripture, there's actually not a whole lot that's talked about. And so we kind of landed in this place of, we don't really know. We walked through some of the places that we see in Old Testament of like Sheol and Abraham's bosom. And we were talking about Hades and paradise and, and Gehenna and these different phrases. What is going on with all of these? And where we landed is this, like Paul says twice, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's basically what we have. There's a few other verses that we can kind of, depending on how we read them, maybe this is saying that. There's not a whole lot. But then afterwards, we said, okay, so that's that window between when someone dies and when Jesus returns. Which often we get those confused and we think that they're kind of one and the same, or at least we treat them that way. Last week, we started this idea of what happens when Jesus returns. And now the difficult thing is this, is how do we know what's coming down the pipeline? Well, there's different genres in the Bible. All right, and we talked about that. We kind of listed them off, just like in music or, or in art or anything like that. Um, and, and I think it's pretty important to understand these different genres, okay? And like, so in music, uh, if someone who understands classical music, like, the more you understand it and the movements and all the things happening, the more you're going to appreciate it. All right, or someone who understands poetry is going to appreciate it more. I do not understand poetry. It's the worst part of English class through high school, and it was just was like, oh, why do we have to do this? I don't know what this is. All right. And like, so there are some parts of poetry where like, like a haiku. Anybody remember a haiku? Okay, this is like the bane of my existence. You have to have a certain number of syllables. And you're like, well, if I just stutter, I have the right number of syllables here. You know, and you're like, why do I have to? And like, you have a certain amount of syllables in each line. When someone understands that, they're going to appreciate it. Now, if you take a haiku poem and you try and like, use it to, to clearly communicate some plans or ideas to someone, that's not the best way, right? And so if you read a haiku poem thinking this is like history, giving you great details, that's going to end up kind of weird. It's, it's not going to give you all of those answers. Okay, and so last week we talked about the idea of apocalyptic literature. 
and how it uses this very vivid and descriptive imagery, all right, and not just any imagery, but actually themes that would have already been established previously in the Bible, especially at the beginning of the Bible, these themes like the waters and what the waters represented. We have it in the opening line of the Bible that the Spirit is hovering above the waters, is that just, is it water or what does that mean? And so you have all these different themes that are coming through. And we actually watched a couple videos uh, from the Bible Project. And this is kind of, we're ending this different from how we normally are. Some of you love this because I'm not talking the whole time. Um, but we are, we're watching some Bible Project videos because I just, I wanted to give it as homework, but we said, we know how well homework goes for people. Especially once you leave high school, college, you're like, I'm not doing any of that. All right, so we actually just took the time last week to watch how do we read apocalyptic literature and then we walked we walk through the book of Daniel because it has apocalyptic literature in it and we're like, there's so much more going on here than we realize. There's multiple language that the book of Daniel is written in that we often miss in our English translation. And so we kind of were walking through this and basically where we ended last week was probably decently confused. And that was okay actually. We're like, this is fine because what we wanted was this. We wanted to kind of have this like, agreed upon place of, wow, like there is a lot going on in my Bible. And what I love about the Bible is whether you're opening it for the first time or you've been studying it your whole life and have a, a doctorate in, in Hebrew or something, like God can speak to you. He can. And, and, and we never want to discount that. But there is a lot more going on in the Bible than we give credit for sometimes. And so we wanted to just start there and kind of start in this place of humility of saying, if we're going to talk about end times, we're going to talk about the book of Revelation, can we at least start in a place of humility, of, of kind of even, and what I want us to do today is even just to remove any preconceived ideas that we might have. You know, I, I would guess that if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard um, people talk about the book of Revelation. Maybe you've read through it. Maybe you've studied it. Um, or maybe you've just watched the movie Left Behind or Thief in the Night, and you're like, all right, I'm good. I got this, right? Like I said last week, I actually, I watched, I went on YouTube and found The Thief in the Night and went back and watched it because I'd never seen that. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> that's, that's one word for it. Um, <laughs> so, but we kind of went through that, and I want us just to take some time and just to, even right now, just begin to think about, okay, what, what ideas do I already have about the end times, about Jesus returning, things like that? And can I take those ideas and kind of set them aside? And I'm okay if at the end of today, we, you go back and pick those up again. But for right now, instead of, instead of looking at this through the lens of our preconceived ideas, can we try and remove that lens a little bit and just focus in and say, okay, what, what might this book be speaking to me? And then kind of go from there. And that's often a pretty hard thing to do. All right? Because I don't think we realize how colored our views sometimes are of different things and how many different filters we have that are kind of doing that. And so uh, I'm going to pray here, and then we're going to watch. It's two videos that we've spliced together back to back. All right? And it's going to be the majority of our time together this morning is, is watching these videos as they talk through the book of Revelation. Okay, and just kind of watch the bigger themes that are happening there. This is a book that's very easy to get caught up in the details of. And the details matter. Details are there for a reason. But I think sometimes that can kind of throw us off a little bit. So I want to pray, and then I'm going to come back up at the end and kind of wrap this up a little bit for us. But uh, I'll pray, and then, guys, we can go right into the video at the end of this prayer. So, uh, Lord, we just, 
We thank you for this, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how uh, important it is in our lives. We thank you for all the ways that we can see your character. We can connect with you through it. But God, I, I pray that we would also try and have a good understanding of times that we are, we are adding our own views. We are bringing our own filters to your word. God, and I pray that this morning would be a time of just kind of taking a step back and focusing in on you and saying, God, how do you want to encourage me through this book that maybe in years past has not brought encouragement to me? So, Jesus, we just ask this in your name. Amen. The Book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of 
Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join in the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne. And together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus's resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals. And John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever 
The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the inside sense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb's scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero's just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way.
Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat? Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon, the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John's showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false god. This isn't something limited to the past, or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention, he's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. 
and his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world, and the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. You guys can see why trying to do this in one week with last week and this was just, uh, yeah, wasn't going to happen. Um, here's what I want to do really quickly for us.
you know, as we saw, there are a lot of varying beliefs on the book of Revelation. One thing I love about this video is actually do a good job of laying out like, hey, some people believe this, some people believe this. But then not letting those details bog them down and saying, either way, the point is this, you know. And, and so they did that several times. And I think that, that we are notorious for sometimes distracting ourselves from what God has called us to do by focusing on these tiny little points. You know, and, and the, the case of this would be, you know, when, when a church isn't focused on reaching the lost and the people around them, they begin to bicker about the color of the carpet and the type of songs that are sung and things like that. And, and we've, we've probably all seen this in some way, shape, or form. And I think the same thing has happened often with this book where because we were like, oh, I want to be really passionate about this part of it. And well, they said it could be A or B and I'm going to say A and I'm going to really dig into that and I'm going to dig my heels in and we're going to argue about this and that's what it is. And they get focused on these little pieces. And so what I want to do here real quickly is this. I'm going to give us three points that I think are important for us to keep no matter what we are reading in the Bible. Okay, and it matters for this book, but it matters for any of them. Okay, and I'm not going to try and convince you one way or the other of what to believe. Like, I have my own beliefs uh, surrounding the book of Revelation and some of these things. If you are interested in that, we can grab coffee. We can grab lunch. Uh, you can join the junior high boys small group that I was in on Wednesday because somehow we ended up talking about dinosaurs, the seventh trumpet, and why is it okay for people to marry their siblings in the Bible. And so, you know, it was great. It was amazing. Um, I love working with middle school boys. Um, and so it's just like we were able to talk about some of those things. And just, uh, it, was, it was fun though. Like that's, I, I love talking about those. I love getting together with people. But we're just not going to do it here on a Sunday morning. So here's what I want. Uh, he, here's the first thing we need to remember when we are reading through the Bible, okay? We need to interpret the Bible through the Bible. Okay, like this, this means that we always need to remember and take a step back and ask, how does this fit into the bigger story of the Bible, the, this idea of design patterns and biblical narrative. Okay, the Bible Project videos, we, we've talked about them a lot at different times. There is one in the group that's how to read the Bible that is about how to read design patterns. There are specific patterns throughout the Bible that we often miss when we take things in small chunks. Uh, and so design patterns, like that matters. Uh, is this in line with what we know from other areas of the Bible? All right, is how I am trying to understand this um, part of this scripture, is that like way out in left field that nothing else ever talks about? That should be a little bit of a red flag for us. That doesn't mean it's always necessarily wrong. There are some things in the Bible that are talked about very sparingly, and there might not be a lot in there, but we should take a step back. In that moment, we're like, this seems to be totally different from everything else I've been reading. We should think through that. Uh, and we see this at the end of these videos. Like he says, Overall, the point of Revelation is to remain faithful to God despite the world around you pulling you in a different direction. I mean, come on, that's the message of the entire Bible. Every page of the Bible, I think we can find that message on it. It would make sense that at the conclusion of this, as Jesus is inspiring this last book, that that would be a prominent theme. All right, second thing. We need to remember that we are not the original recipients of the Bible. Okay, this might seems silly and obvious, but this is important. And it's time, like, we start trying to make, this is when we try to make the Bible say something um, different from what it said to the original readers. If we land in a spot where we are trying to make the Bible say something that the original readers never would have gotten out of that passage, 
there should be red flags of just saying, okay, let's take a step back. Is this what's really being communicated here? Is this what I'm supposed to be taking out of this? We need to first understand the Bible in their context. What did it mean to them? Then we point out all the differences between them and us, okay, so that we can accurately bring it to our time. So the differences are culture, time, language, situation, even covenant. Like when we're reading in the Old Testament, the covenant that they had with God is different than the covenant that we have with God. And we have to take those things into account as we begin to walk through these things. All right, like we can't take all the Old Testament laws and automatically apply them to us. It's a different covenant. All right, and the last point for us this morning, we cannot twist the passage to say what we want it to say. All right, or, or to say something that it originally didn't say. This is kind of almost jumping off of point number two. And this happens way more often than it should. We find one verse that supports our point and we use it. Okay, like we often have an idea in our head and we're like, okay, this is what I think is right. And we have that idea from various areas. And then we go to the Bible and try and find a verse or two that support that idea. All right, and and if you gave me enough time, I could probably find scripture, twist that scripture, and support almost anything. Like it, it just, that's how you can do this. If you want to twist things in there, you know, we look back even at the history of our country and the amount of people that use scripture to say that slavery is absolutely okay and even condoned by God. All through the Civil War. Because they, they, they had an idea of what they wanted in their life and they went to the Bible and they found spots to say, see, that's what it says right there. But, but they're missing the bigger point. They're missing what it said to the original readers. They're missing interpreting the Bible through the Bible. Why would God ever say, yes, one human should be in control of another one in that type of way? That's not what we see as his ideal. Pastors fall into this decently often, way more than we would want to admit, where you're like, okay, we need to talk about this topic in our church all right, let's grab a verse. And, and we, they already have the idea in their minds or at times I already have an idea of my mind of, of what I want to talk about. And here's what I would say. I think actually the Bible does talk about basically almost anything that we could think of. But we get lazy. And we either don't want to do the hard work to find where the Bible's actually talking about what is going on or we already want to know what we think the Bible's going to say. So I'm, if, if I read a verse, and it might be talking about that, but it doesn't say what I want it to, I will just ignore that. Keep turning the page. We'll find a different one. And we just keep going through this. We do this often when we read the book of Revelation and try to make it say something that it didn't say to the first readers. Remember, the apostles, they, they, they believed that Jesus was going to return in their time. Okay? Like, so we can't look at events in our life or in our government or in our world and say, well, now Jesus could return because it's fulfilled what was written in Revelation. What does that mean about the original readers when they were reading this and saying, Jesus can return right now? Does it just mean that they were missing a ton of stuff and now we know better? Can I have this idea that as, as humanity has moved on that we have become that much more intelligent. We understand things and we, we, we take the idea of technology and we're like, we're so much more advanced. 
Okay, well, not when we completely forget the genres of writing and things like that and what was going on. Like, and so they weren't confused by this book, the original readers. This was encouraging and challenging to them in the early church. It was not a book that inspired fear. So if you're reading the book of Revelation and you're finding yourself fearful or, or you now view entities in the world through a fear-based lens, like you are reading this wrong. If we remember these simple ideas as we read, we will begin to understand the Bible way more. So when it, when it comes to the return of Jesus, we are told some, not a whole lot, we're given a good picture of the ending, but we are really meant to stay focused on keeping our allegiance given solely to God, no other entity. And that right there is challenge enough to keep us busy for the rest of our lives. So it isn't, it isn't bad to have some ideas of what it will look like. It isn't bad to study some of this. All right, Don't let it consume you to the point where you are missing what God is calling you to do right here and now. I've seen that happen. People get so dug into this that they're missing what God's calling them to. All right, and, and like we said, there's a lot of different ways to look at Revelation. It doesn't matter what way you want to take it. Like all of, all of these things, these have to be present. No matter what way you want to look at Revelation, if you're not doing these things, you're going to end up in a dangerous area. And this happens when we want to read it through our own political, cultural lens. And we look at the country we live in, and we look at the world around us, and we say, wow, things are getting bad. Jesus must be returning soon. And, and, and we begin to interpret the scripture through the times instead of interpreting the times through scripture. Our time is not as unique as what we think, okay? Like, just because life in America is maybe less convenient or less comfortable for you, or it's less comfortable to be a Christian, doesn't mean that the world must be ending, all right, like that, that's pretty arrogant and self-centered, like interpretation of scripture. What, what about the Christians in the first century that were being fed to lions? Do we really want to say, wow, Jesus must be returning because this is happening right now? Wouldn't have that, like if Jesus were going to return because the world is evil and in a bad place, that would have happened time and time again. So when we say, like, we look at our country, we look at our world, we look at things going on, we go, wow. Now, I'm not saying that we lull ourselves into a sleep. There has to be this idea of this imminent return. But think about what that says about Christians in Poland in the 1940s and everything that's going on with World War II and, and Germany. What about Christians in Russia in the 1980s and, and what was happening? Christians in Rwanda in the 90s when 800,000 people were killed by their government. Don't you think they would have looked at that and said, wow, like, Jesus must be returning soon. And we look at those ideas, the Christians in, the, in Afghanistan in different places, and then we look at ours and we're like, wow, why is everyone saying Jesus must be returning because the Supreme Court is looking at this law? Oh, man. It's the end of the world. So I, I want to tread lightly on some of this because, again, I'm not trying to get rid of this idea that, like, we, we are in the end times, but we have been since Jesus left. It didn't happen when one political party took control. This, this is the end times. Jesus could return. So when we have that very Americanized view of it, if you are jumping on the train of someone on social media that says, the world must be ending because of this or that, like, at best it's arrogant and at worst it's incredibly dangerous and gives us a very skewed view. 
all right? And so I, I want us to keep this idea from this series. Hold tightly. Hold tightly to the return of Jesus. Hold loosely to how, when, where, all those types of things. Okay, we said this at the, at the beginning. We had this, this, the, uh, this sphere in this series. And we said our core beliefs are right there in the middle. That's what makes you a Christian. That's what you hold tightly to. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise of it. The problem is we take things from the outer circles and we begin to hold them tightly and all of a sudden we are no longer convinced of it and so we just let go of everything. Instead of saying, I'm going to hold tightly that God created the world. We say, well, I'm going to hold tightly to this one view of creation that it was done in seven literal 24-hour periods. And then something happens where all of a sudden we don't think that's true anymore and we think I must have to let go of everything. And so we've taught young people to hold tightly to way more than they probably should. And we, we've done it with well intentions. But I think this is part of why we have people walking away from the church left and right. Because we've told them to hang on to the wrong things. You can have those beliefs, but hold them loosely. Hold on tightly to Jesus. And so that's what I want to kind of close this whole series on, foundation, on foundational things in our life with. Hold tightly to the foundational pieces. Hold loosely to those extra pieces that are around it, that are good, that are important. You know, we said like that second key beliefs one. This really is where you land in what denomination you're in. But those don't make you land in whether you're a Christian or not. They're important. They're good. You can study them. You can, you... But don't hold so incredibly tightly that we lose our faith and we lose our relationship with Jesus because we are hanging on to the wrong things. Would you stand with me? I want to just close in prayer. I think for some of us, you might be saying, okay, I need to, I need to go back and you can go back and watch through some of these foundational ones. You know, we've talked through a lot of different things. I still loved walking through the Apostles' Creed. I think that's the first time I've ever done that in a church. Just looking at some of these things, what is it that we believe? What makes us followers of Jesus? And it's so easy to become distracted with some of these areas and to become so incredibly passionate about things that they're in the Bible, they, they matter, but maybe they aren't, maybe they aren't the pieces that we're supposed to be really digging into in that moment of our life. So I want to just close us. Uh, I want this to be an encouragement today. That's the book of Revelation is encouraging. The Bible is encouraging. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have. God, we just pray that you would forgive us for those moments where we have twisted it. We have made it our own. We've made it say things that we want it to say. Instead of just going to your word and, and asking, God, just reveal yourself, reveal your character, reveal your purpose and your plan for creation as I read through this. God, I pray that we would be able to just kind of take those steps back and trust you a little bit more.
Jesus, we thank you for this community that we have. We thank you for the, just the, the greater church and Christian community in this area, Lord. We pray over Pastor Matt at the Baptist Church and, and Pastor Noah at Trinity Lutheran and Pastor Ethan at American Lutheran and Pastor Callie with the United Methodist Churches. We pray over every single one of those churches, over one of those pastors, God. We thank you for them. We thank you that we have this greater community. Lord, even though we have differences between us, Lord, that we wouldn't let those become so big that we can't even just spend time together and, and realize that we're, we're on the same team, moving in the right direction, Lord. God and Father Omar, Lord, we, just, we thank you for, for this community in our town. Jesus, we pray that you would use not just us, but every single one of those to bring your kingdom here and now, right here. We ask this in your name. Amen.